It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is comedian Rocky Laporte. He's headlining in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana Las Vegas through June 12th with two shows at 8.30 and 10.30. For ticket information, go to troplv.com. And for everything about Rocky Laporte, go to rockylaporte.com. And you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Rocky Laporte. Rocky, welcome to the show. How you doing, Ira? Good. Doing well. Thanks for having Thank me, Thank you. Buddy. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you're from Brooklyn, right? Yeah, I lived in Brooklyn. I grew up in between there and Chicago. I lived in uh, both places, believe it or not. We have family uh, both, you know. But, well, I was uh, thinking since you're from Brooklyn, you could be Rocky Laporte Authority. <laughs> you know, okay. I, it could work, right? That's why he asked. Yeah, that's why okay. I asked. All right, I was being sneaky, but you picked up No, it was there. good. You got that joke in there. Yeah, I, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> but, but had you just said, yeah, I was born in Brooklyn, then I could have gotten right in with it and we would have been, uh, we've been moving on. But no, you had to throw in Chicago. <laughs> uh, it's my hometown now, you know. I exactly, love it here. exactly. I love your accent. It's a mix. And we were talking before and all of a sudden it dawned on me who you are a combination of in my head, which is Tommy Lasorda and Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, that's, I get Justin Bieber a lot. A lot of <laughs> <laughs> no, Britney he's, Spears. <laughs> no, he's, he, they're too old for you. No, no, that, 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 I don't think that would work. Now, before we get into your long career, which actually it is a long career, and a lot of people don't really, because you look really young, is well, thank you, you. you used to be a truck driver, right? Yeah, yes. Okay, sir. so did you crack jokes over the CB radio or did you even have a CB? Oh, yeah, radio? I was always getting in trouble for doing <laughs> stuff like that. And in school, I spent more time in the hall in school. They were, the teacher, I was going to the hall or going to the principal's office. And, you know, I thought they were going to put my desk in the principal's office at one point because I was down there so much, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I was just a screwball and, you know, but I wasn't the annoying kid, but I was, I knew my teachers were laughing. So that was good. I wasn't a troublemaker. I was just, you know. Here's what I think it is with you is, and I've talked to other comedians, some of whom had those issues when they were a kid with their teachers and principals. And you could be a comedian or you could be a smart aleck when you're in school. And sometimes a teacher will tolerate it if you're likable and you're a likable personality. So I think that's, you always had that likability and that's how you got away with it. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think uh, my jokes were like, you know, for a fourth or fifth grader, the stuff I was saying, if I knew I was making an adult laugh, like then I go, oh, I'm doing like, I'm not, you know, I'm just annoying the class from the lesson. I wasn't like bothering people or anything, but it, it, it worked out good, you know, work. I guess that was my <laughs> learning ground, right? Exactly. What were your parents' reactions to the fact that clearly you're on a road, you're on a path to comedy? You were obviously, we talked earlier, you were a truck driver, you did other things as well. Were they okay with it when you finally made the announcement that this is what I'm going to pursue full time? No, honestly, uh, at that time I was married and my wife was the only one behind me. Like my parents and my best friends, they're going like, what are you nuts? You know, they go, you got a steady gig here driving a truck. And there's so much competition and comedy, but all those people being negative, it made me want to do it more. 
like it, it drove me even further. I go, I'm going to prove them wrong. And I felt in my heart that that's where I'm supposed to be. Like, and I always love making people laugh. Like that's what brought me joy. So I go, I could always go back and drive a truck, you know, like I want to try this. Have you ever thought this would be, I just thought of something that would work for you really well. Not now because you're, you're too popular now to do it. But when you first started out, if you had your truck and you made it a comedy truck and you drove from town to town and you opened up the back of the truck, which is a stage inside and you invite the audience uh-huh. in and you charge them a decent amount and maybe you maybe you can't serve drinks because of licensing, but you just perform inside the truck. So <laughs> would that work? You're getting heckled out there in the middle of the street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you can even that. hit the small towns and get heckled in the cornfields, you know. Yeah. You want to hear something? Yes. When, uh, when COVID hit, I was actually in, in Vegas and it was that St. Paddy's Day weekend and they sent this home and then I didn't work till that October. But that f- my first gig back, it was in a cornfield out here in DeKalb. And uh, there was, a deer ran through. Of course. Like it was unbelievable. <laughs> People were sitting around fires. And I, I would have never imagined in my career that if someone told me you're going to be working in a cornfield after doing comedy for 33 years, I'd be like, no, no way. What was the comedy corny? <laughs> it was it was all it was good and bad. Good and bad. It was just enough. weird. The whole thing was weird, you know. What your style to me is both unique, but it's also organic. You're not copying off of somebody else. You're being yourself, and I think that's half the battle communicating with an audience. I talked about likability earlier, but it, it's not just likability. If you're perceived as being authentic, to use another overused word, or organic. That that works, that combination of likability and organic in terms of your approach and your presentation. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, I remember uh, Silver Friedman, Bud's wife, she saw me way back in the day when I first started. And she, she said that same word. She goes, you're very organic. She goes, oh, you're there very, we go. Yeah, well, and I like, I guess I, it was a, uh, I guess organic's good today. Everybody's buying it like organic stuff. So <laughs> I don't know. Well, I guess I'm chemical free. I don't you know. What are. That means. Well, it also means you're not artificial. So, okay. Yeah. Well, okay. That's good. Yeah. I mean, there are comedians who are really good, but they're different off stage, And that's sometimes good, especially if it's a manic comedian. And there are comedians yeah. that are more themselves, maybe a slight exaggeration. You seem sure. to me, and I may be wrong, but you seem to me both the same on and off stage, because again, to use that word, you're organic or you're authentic. And so you don't have to, you don't have to exaggerate too much to be funny. Oh yeah. Well, can you imagine like living with a guy like Sam Kinison, like screaming all the time, walking around in a trench coat, yelling at you or (laughs) Bobcat Goldwaite, (laughs) you know, if they were like, uh, unless they're married to each other, then they probably could handle it. Yeah. (laughs) So that's, and I think the cops would be at the house. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. How do you write your material? Do you just know what you want to talk about in terms of your life and observations, and you sit down and you write and you try it out in front of different audiences. Maybe you try it out in front of your family or friends first and then to a commercial audience. How does that work for you? Um, Yeah. If there's something like, I don't know, like I think comics, like our brains just think different, you know, and um, we'll, we'll see something that's out of like in everyday life and find something funny out of it, I think, you know, or sometimes I'll just read about something like right now I'm working on a bit about a guy. I think his name was Sullivan. This is a true story. 
uh, he had the record for getting hit by lightning. I guess he got <laughs> hit by lightning like seven times. And I'm like, what? And it made me think like when they, maybe whatever, right? Like if he was like six was the record, was his family pushing him to get the seven? <laughs> like where, you, you know, they're wrapping him up in tinfoil with a golf club and throwing him out in the storm. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I, I just read a story about a guy that got hit by lightning the most. And I go, there's something funny in here, you know? <laughs> no, it is. But when you, when you work on it, I don't want to get too far into the weeds and, and bore our audience, but it is intriguing how different comedians work on their material. Do you write it down and then keep polishing it so it's exactly the way you want it, or you just get the concept as you just talked about with the lightning and then work it to where you think it'll be, and then you don't have to write it down and move a word here and move a word there? Yeah. I like to write it down and then uh, cut all the fat out, like get out. I just want to get to the funny part, you know, like give them the information that they need and then get to the joke. I like setting it up and punching it like quick as possible. You know, there's another bit I'm working on. And I, during the pandemic, you know, everybody's watching all these crazy shows and they were, you remember that family, the flying Walendas? Yes, they're like, absolutely. They're a high wire act. Remember like they would without a net. So every couple of years, like one of them fell off the wire, you know, and they, you know, and so I'm like, well, obviously they can't fly. (laughs) <laughs> That's uh, true. So, <laughs> I laugh at that situation, but you're right. The name is kind of unusual. It's like the falling Walendas. That's, that's what I was going to say. I go, they fall a lot, but yeah. that would look bad on the poster. Like yes, it would. The falling Walendas one night only. You know <laughs> Unless I mean? you're a sadistic audience, you would go and watch that. So there is a market segment out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> when you, do you basically, when you, when you look for stuff, which you're going to make funny. I don't say you're going to look for funny stuff. You obviously look for stuff. Is it primarily read the newspapers, watch television, all of the above, or how does that work for you? Yeah, I think it's like everyday life. You know, uh, I do a bit. This really happened. I was in Target a couple of years ago around Christmas time. And this lady, uh, you know, she's wearing brown khakis and a red shirt. And I go, can you tell me where the Christmas lights are? And she goes, I don't work here. I'm like, then like what idiot goes into Target with a red shirt on and, and khaki pants? It's like I'm like you're mad at me? Like you know what I'm saying? Like I don't know. So some of it's just like everyday stuff, right, you know? Right, exactly. But that's the best kind, isn't it? Because I think people, again, going back to what we're talking about, I think people will relate to you because yeah. you are, and I'll put this in quotes, an everyman, in that you're experiencing daily life. You're observing daily life. You're writing about daily life, and then things that everybody about. sees. Yeah, exactly. And they may not see it exactly the way you see it initially, but once you tell the joke, they go, "Well, yes, of course, that makes perfect sense." Yeah, yeah. You know, and I always have people come up after a show. They go, "That happens to me," or they'll you see them elbowing their buddy, and they'll go, "That's you." Or you know, another funny thing that happened to me too that I want to work on. We ever like we ever sit in a movie theater, right? Like, you know, like you're with your buddy or whatever. You're watching a movie. And then I remember one time I dropped something. And so I went to pick it up and something funny happened in the movie. So everybody's laughing and my and my friends laughing. And I go, what happened? And he goes, I don't know. And I go, well, what are you laughing for, you idiot? <laughs> like, did you ever see people do that? Yes. I thought you were going to say something like, well, can you rewind that one little segment I missed <laughs> yeah. thinking you were at home? Because everybody yeah. in the movies these days thinks they're at home. So they talk and yeah. they yell and they take phone yeah. calls and they do all that kind of stuff. So that might yep. work too, but 
you never know. When you look at the audience that you perform in front of, is it varied? Have you got your demographic tailored or is it more widely spread out? Uh, I guess it depends where you go, you know, if you're in a college town or whatever. But uh, I, I found out like my following, uh, it's mostly like 35 and up and uh, because I'm pretty clean, you know, and I think people like that. And they bring their grandmas and then they bring their uncles. And then before you know it, like especially like uh, in towns where there's a lot of Italian people, like they're bringing me cannolis and they want me to meet the, the little baby. And this is my uncle Vito, you know, but that, that's flattering to me. If and one, I, guy, I love if one guy in town brings his family, you already got 40 people in the audience. Exactly. Yeah, they so always bring out. more. To yeah, go to. absolutely. You know, I yeah. talked with Henry Cho just last week and same situation. He works clean. And I think a lot of comedians feel they have to not work clean. And yet there's a definite market segment out there, which is called the American people that I think <laughs> <laughs> appreciates people who work clean. Because if you can get something funny going without resorting to the usual stuff, which everybody else does, you set yourself yeah. apart. You're absolutely, and you know what? You open more opportunities to like corporate gigs and, you know, cruise ships and even television. And I've had people thank me a lot through my career to go, thanks for being clean. I don't know anybody that went up to a comic and go, thanks for being filthy or <laughs> offending my, my mom or, do you know right, what I'm saying? Right. Unless it's the same sadistic people that went to see the following Willendas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that market segment you can't change. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the, but I think there's a niche for everybody. You know, like look at Dice. You know, I mean, um, when he came out, it was very controversial, but he got his audience, you know. Do you have, have you thought about organizing so you and Henry Cho and others can make, make a, uh, an association, the Clean Comedians Association? That'd be a great idea. Like that's a good idea. And I think people want, I know corporate people want that. And there's been comics that, you know, corporations will hire them and they go, okay, be clean. And then they don't. And then it kind of ruins it for a lot. Of, you know, then they'll hire a DJ or whatever. Well, you if know? you had an association that vet all the members and that way the corporation people can feel comfortable booking someone. And That's and, a great idea. Yeah. And I mean, there's a place for blue material. I, have, I don't have a problem with it. I just think that if that's all you're doing, then you're not really expressing the wide variety or the spectrum of comedy. And, yeah. and there's room yeah. on the spectrum for everyone, including Rocky Laporte, clearly. So you've created this, along with Henry Cho and others, this this particular market segment of comedians that work clean. And yeah, yeah maybe get together and figure out a way to market that. That might be a good yeah. idea. You know, it's so weird. I, I hate politics. Like, I grew up in Chicago, and this is the most corrupt town. Uh, but I did, uh, and I don't go one way or the other. I don't mean I vote for the best person. I don't like, I don't like talking about it or anything. But I ended up, Right before Cole, I did the Mike Huckabee show. He's got, and that's on like the Christian TV network. So that was like all church people. But I did really well on there and they asked me to come back. And I was working in Nashville that night and I haven't been in Nashville probably in about 12 years. So the following night after, you know, we shot Huckabee and it aired, we had another 125 people show up at the show just from seeing me. On, that, on the Christian Broadcasting Network, which I'm like, wow. And I was invited back. So I think you, you could take your audience wherever you can get them, you know? Like exactly. Also, too, and I'm sure Henry Cho won't get mad that I'm suggesting this to you because he could use a little competition. He's performed at the Grand Ole Opry several oh. times, but he grew up in Knoxville. 
But because you were clean, that might be a, another venue down the road for you as well. Yeah, I know. I remember two times we did corporate gigs at that Grand Old Opry Hotel. And it was, it was like in a. Well, that's different. Like I'm talking. Giant. I'm talking about the actual Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, man. But yeah, I could see you no. with your background and as a truck driver, you, you you could get right in there and it's clean material. So I could see it working yeah. very well. You when know you what? Work- people in the South they laugh at just at my accent. Like they'll start. They go, "This guy is a mook." You know, like he just sounds like a goof that only went to fifth grade. <laughs> like, <laughs> but that's okay. You know. <laughs> When you work the corporate gigs, do you wear a collar shirt or? Yeah, I'll, I'll put like a nice uh, suit jacket on and a shirt. Because I noticed for me, you're wearing a t-shirt and a ball cap, and that's and rightly so, because I, I get no respect whenever I do these shows. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, that's how I feel more. Com- this is how I walk around. Of course, this is what I, you know. They say you got to be yourself on stage. You do. You, know? you do. You open for among others: Louis Anderson, Gary Shandling, Drew Carey, Tim Allen. Did you learn any tips for them before you became a headliner? Did they give you some ideas that you incorporated? Again, you're still being yourself, but they may have given you some suggestions for timing or approach or presentation. Uh, I remember early on in my career, there was a couple guys that said, hey, like, you know, be, I wasn't dirty, but I had like the, you know, a couple like uh, stock premises, you know, about the, but I was new, you know, I, I was believe only doing they call that, I believe Rocky, they call that hack material, <laughs> not stock material. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Whatever. Hacks that, yeah. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So, you know, and I remember like I had this closing bit, like, and it was my strong, and it was like five minutes long. It was my strongest bit. And now I look back at it in horror. But it was just like something stupid about going to the store and buying tampons for your wife and just that. And I was like, oh, man. And so many people were doing it at that time. And uh, I forgot who they were. There were a couple. Maybe it was Richard Jenny and a couple guys like that back then. George Wallace and Louie Anderson. They go, man, get rid of that bit. you know. And they go, it don't fit with all the other stuff you're doing. And it's kind of like, you know stock a lot of people are doing that so that was good advice you know and i'm in my mind i go man i'm losing my closer and it was my strongest bit at the time but now i look back and go what a that was great advice and you know now i look i go i would never write something like that again you know well you learn you grow and you learn that's how that's why you were so successful in all the different things that you've done and your time in las vegas when did you first start appearing in las vegas um, you back, you know what? I started in '88 in comedy, and uh, I'm not even kidding. I was it was February 18th, 1988, and I was on stage maybe nine times. And on St. Paddy's Day, which was like five weeks later or whatever, I won a local contest, and the the award was you get to go to perform in Vegas. Nice. So it was at the Mint. I don't even think it's there no more. The Mint Hotel. The Mint. Yeah. That? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And there was a comedy room up there. Yeah. And it was out. And Sandy Hackett was the uh, the host. And it was my, like my 10th time on stage. And I go, I'm in Vegas already. And I, I knew then I go, my life's changing. Like, I don't think I'm going to be driving a truck much longer. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, but. Pretty uh, impressive. So you've been you've been in Las Vegas since 88 and now. You're going to be at the Laugh Factory, and then you. How often do you come back to Vegas? So you'll be at the Laugh uh, Factory like as we four or five it. times a year. You know, uh, like in July, I'll, I'll be at the MGM over there, at Brad's place, and we at Harry's place there at the Trap. And you know, they're both great guys, and they, they treat us well. And 
that that makes it nice, you know, and enjoyable to come. And you know, Vegas, you get people from all over. That's what you know. You can't like say if you're working in Iowa, you know, like well, you know, they're this kind of audience, or Florida's that kind of audience. But Vegas, there's people from all over the world. You know, do you have steady people that come to see you, depending on the venue you're at or the city you're at, returning fans? Oh yeah, I've had people following me for my whole career. Like they go. You know, we saw you on your first time on stage or second. And I, they're, and they've become friends, you know, like, I don't even want to call them fans. Like, I don't even like that word. Like, I feel like I'm, that's like talking down to people. Like I, I, I love them. Like, they're just great. And, you know, they, they bring, they go, you got to watch this guy. And they're always bringing people like in Detroit and Cleveland, Chicago, like all the blue collar, you know, Pittsburgh, Buffalo. Like I got a lot of, you know people there that come out and see me they're like regular blue collar people you know well that's a big market yeah yeah but i've done you know things like in hawaii and you know i lived in california for a while and so everybody like i've done all kinds of you know country clubs or you know wealthy people and all worked pretty good and i that's what makes me happy like i i'm pretty good across the board you know like i can you know like even young college kids go hey you're, you're funny you know if you can get mm, the college think. audience, that's really impressive because most college audiences, unfortunately, are more <laughs> white color than blue color, and they tend to not appreciate that kind of approach. So the fact that you can do it again, I think it comes back to your likability as well as that unusual voice uh, <laughs> and your yeah. approach and your approach to comedy as well. When you're on the road, so you're on the road a lot. So does that work out okay with the family, and do they sometimes come with you to? To watch you or at least be with yeah, you? Yeah. You know, I'm divorced now. We got divorced. And I, I honestly think the road was part of it. You know, like it's a hard life. If you talk to any you know, musician, comic, like uh, if you got a family and you're gone, you know, two, three weeks out of a month. Yeah, there's a price to pay for it, you know. And yeah, it, it bothered me for a long time. But, um, you know, me and my kids are close now and I got grandkids and everything's good. And I asked them about it, you know, and they go, yeah, but dad, we got to do cool stuff. You know, like, you know, I would take, we go across country, you know, I, they got to see the Grand Canyon when they were little and, you know, everywhere. They've been to Vegas and, you know, while other kids were going, you know, I don't know, in their pool or whatever, you know, my kids got to see the country, you know, and so I guess there's good and bad goes along. Yeah, with and they have the fact that they were exposed to a lot of different areas because of that, that makes sense. You look too young to be a grandparent, but I know you're a grandparent as well. I got 11 grandkids. So that alone is a fan base. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a football team. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if they, if they came to your show and brought one of their friends each, you've, you've already got 22 people in the audience. Yeah, we're playing the Browns uh, in, a, in a preseason game next Saturday. <laughs> hey, want to hear something? When the... Like, I, you know, a lot of people knew I'm living in Chicago. So when a couple of years ago, when the, when the Chicago Cubs beat the Cleveland Indians in the World Series, it was in October. About six weeks later, the Cleveland Indians front office hired me to do their Christmas party. So I'm, I'm there and there's about 400 people. And the guy that introduces me, he goes, this next guy's from Chicago. I had 400 people boo. They were booing me all the way to the stage. I've never had that happen. Like, and I had to walk through the crowd. 
And I go, I'm a White Sox fan, you idiots. I go, I was rooting for you guys. <laughs> Hopefully you had the mic when you said that so they could hear you. Yeah, oh, yeah. And then they, they, they clap. What, what has been the most unusual audience? That may have been it, but what, what is the most unusual audience you've encountered in, in your career? Oh, man. There's so many. Or, or let me put know. it another way. Maybe not unusual, maybe hostile or indifferent or wasn't laughing. That happens to every comedian at some point. Yeah, yeah. And then it I remember like working some bars like in Kentucky that were, you know, they didn't want to shut the jukebox off and, you know, they were drunk and, you know, they wanted to fight. And it was like, oh, boy. I guess that's the dues you pay in the early days, like coming up through those. It was like the Blues Brothers. Remember they were working behind chicken wire and people yeah. were throwing beer bottles. <laughs> <laughs> they had to work behind a protective <laughs> thing. All right. Here's the flip side. Where's the most elegant place you've worked, whether it's a theater or a performing arts center, something like that? Oh, it was a lot. You know, I was, I was on the road for a while uh, with Ron White. I was opening for Ron White and, you know, he played some beautiful theaters, you know, like all over the country. And, um, Doing the Tonight Show was fun. I got a standing ovation on there, and that I was very, I was shocked and proud and everything. It was like a car accident; like everything's happening so fast, you know. Anytime you can get a standing ovation on the Tonight Show, that's that's good. Yeah, yeah. I was. I didn't even know. I was. I had my back to the audience, and I was shaking Jay's hand at the desk, and he was turn around. You're getting a standing ovation, and I. I didn't know. I was telling people sit down. Like I didn't. I'm like. Well, you did. They have the doing. lights off in the audience. Were you able to see them standing to give you? Uh, yeah, you could see them. Okay. Uh, okay. In the studios, that they're lit up a little more yeah. than uh, in a club. You know. Have you thought about whether you wanted to do a TV series? You know what? Or is, that, had... is that not in your interest in the sense that you really enjoy what you're doing performing live? No, I would have loved uh, I was in a couple, uh, I had small parts in a couple Tim Allen movies, and I really enjoyed that. I liked, you know, doing movies, even though I've only done two. I had a couple development deals for sitcom, and I don't know, this is just my, the first one I had with CBS, the, the writer, the actors went on strike that year. And then a couple, about five or six years later, I had one with ABC, and the writers went on strike. So, like, what are the odds of that? And then yeah. they started putting all reality shows That's on. strike one and strike two, so now you've got one more. Man, I guess, you know, but I don't know. Like, what, what are the odds of that happening? And then we I could shot see a you, pilot. I could, well, I could see you in a Tim Allen sitcom just because the, yeah. I could yeah. see the synergy there. Yeah, he's a good guy. He was great to me. We shot a pilot at CBS, but I didn't, I didn't like it at all. Like um, they really wouldn't let me put my own jokes in there or my own spin. Like they hire you, they go, oh, we love your act. Da, da, da. Like, come on, let's do this. And then you, you got to sync with somebody else's words. Do you know what I'm saying? Like uh, the jokes that they were writing, I don't think that the head writer got me or what I was doing. Like if my ship goes down with my jokes, I'm, I'm fine with that. You are. Absolutely. That. But when they put your name on something, when they go, this is the Rocky Laporte show, and you're doing other guys' uh, writing that you don't think is funny, it, it don't work, you know? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I just came up with another idea for you. You can start or restart a new cartoon. It would I'm going to hire you as my agent. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> you Rocky, got a lot of good ideas. <laughs> Rocky Laporte and Bullwinkle. 
I could see that. As a... <laughs> I'm trying to fire my agent, but he won't take my call. <laughs> you may have to. You're send my him. new agent, Ira. <laughs> you may have to send him a certified letter. Anyway, that's, right. that's a great way to leave it. <laughs> I'm going to send him this this video we're doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. My guest has been comedian Rocky Laporte. He's headlining in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana Las Vegas through June 12th with two shows at 8.30 and 10.30. For ticket information, go to troplv.com. And for everything about Rocky Laporte, and that's with an E at the end of the T, go to rockylaporte.com, and you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Rocky Laporte. Rocky, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Ira. It was a lot of fun. Same here. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.